mean, human connection or physical human connection is a, is a huge important predictor of satisfaction and well-being. And we've been cut off from a lot of sources of this physical contact with others. And that's certainly going to have um, ramifications. But to not just put a really dark spin on it, I think people have been adapting in many ways to try and, and maintain these relationships despite this physical distance and these physical barriers that have emerged. Hey everybody, thanks for checking out our new podcast, Understanding Our Place in the World. The podcast is brought to you by the Department of Psychology at the University of Essex. My name is Philip Casolino, and I'm an experimental social psychologist at Essex. And my guest today is Dr. Veronica LaMarche. Veronica is a relationship scientist at Essex. She studies how people regulate trust and dependence in their romantic relationships and how feelings of uncertainty or vulnerability can influence relationship stability. We spoke recently about her work and about romantic relationships and even more general forms of human interaction at a time of lockdowns and social distance. Okay, well, welcome, uh, Veronica LaMarche. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for uh, agreeing to be on. Thanks, Philip. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into what you're doing now. Yeah, so I uh, did my undergraduate degree in psychology and business at the University of Waterloo, which is in Ontario, Canada. I'm originally from Canada. And then I did my PhD at the University at Buffalo uh, in Buffalo, New York. And now I'm here in England. So I've kind of had a very international academic career. Um, but what got me interested in uh, relationships in the first place was actually always, even, even before I started my studies, really trying to understand why some relationships seem to, to last, even maybe when they shouldn't, you know, looking around and seeing people who are in really unhappy relationships, but being reluctant to leave them. And also people... Uh, understanding why people might leave what seems like otherwise a really great, happy, healthy relationship and trying to understand psychologically what keeps relationships together for better or for worse. And that's what really got me interested in early uh, at an early period in the work I do now. The PhD that you did, um, uh, you said uh, in New York, right? Um, mm -hmm. what, what was, what, talk a little bit about the, the, the sort of the project, the research that was a, a part of that thesis. Yeah, so um, I, I focused uh, predominantly on relationship maintenance. So that's a that's a subtopic within the broader topic of relationships, trying to understand how people stay together or why people stay together. And then particularly focused on studies that examined why, um, how people balance trust and dependence um, in, in periods of uncertainty or vulnerability. So looking and examining how we have these two fundamental needs. We have this fundamental need to be connected and and draw closer to our, our relationship partners, and that's really beneficial for the relationship. But that can be put up against um, another need that is to protect ourselves from harm. And that harm can sometimes come from a partner who might treat us badly or hurt our feelings or disappoint us. And how do we balance these two forces, these two opposing forces that tell us on the one hand, you know, you should remain invested and, and draw closer to a partner. And, um, and this other goal that says, you know, watch out, don't let yourself get hurt. 
Um, and so I ran a series of different studies investigating that. And towards the end of my PhD, I became really focused in understanding how these same type of dynamics might play out, but not just in response to behaviors that your partner does, but actually behaviors that are happening in your broader social environmental uh, network. So I have some research looking at how pain can influence our perceptions of our partner's care for us, um, and also work looking at how um, um, uncertainty about our global political environment can also have a ramification for how we think about our relationship partners as well. Well, it's a good thing that that, that last bit isn't relevant today. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's a whole separate conversation, I think. <laughs> So what's interesting, uh, so I want to ask a couple questions. The first thing, you said pain, so literally physical pain? Yeah, so in the research I've done recently, uh, um, I looked at physical pain, and um, we had it, it measured a couple of different ways. We had some people who are chronic pain um, uh, patients who reported their experiences with their chronic pain or other individuals who just reflected on how much pain they'd experienced recently. But in an experimental study, I actually had people come into our lab in, in Buffalo and um, we used a cold presser task. So what that is, is you had people stick their hand in freezing ice water, water that we had kept at zero degrees Celsius, and then ask them a bunch of questions about their relationship once we let them take their hand out. So I've been conceptualizing pain, and I also have some studies with um, pathogens, which is relevant to the current environment as well. But, um, but I've been conceptualizing those as indicators of threats to your, you know, your self-preservation goals. And what your relationship can offer is a signal of safety. So there, you know, is an abundance of research from, from relationship scientists and other scientists showing that we really rely on our, uh, our social networks and particularly our close others. And for a lot of people, their relationship partner is the closest other in their social network. And so what it does is for some people, um, they're motivated to really affirm the safety that those relationships can provide them with uh, as a way of compensating for the threat that's in their environment. And for other people, um, which gets into a really complex set of parameters, but for other people who are already doubting the safety within that network, they're actually motivated to kind of disengage and, and view their relationship partners as less, uh, as less safety uh, providing than, than uh, other individuals are or, or or how they see them when they're not in pain. Same. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so again, let me make sure I'm clear on this. So, yeah. to some extent, if I'm in a relationship and I'm in, in a situation of illness, pain, at that moment, I'm going to need my social support network, but certainly my partner mm -hmm. a fair bit more. But the danger is, is that my partner may actually may, uh, depending on I'm sure a number of factors, actually be less likely to be there to, uh, through uh, that need. Is that what you're saying? Well, so the, the processes that I've explored have all been um, contained within the individual experiencing the pain. So these are all their perceptions mm -hmm. of their partner. And that's where the, the, the signal of safety comes from. But certainly there are behaviors um, that the partner can be doing to reassure those individuals that they are in fact a safe you know, a safe network that can be relied on. Uh, and so those are those are kind of outstanding questions that I'm hoping to explore, um, you know, soon, is to understand to what point are our partners sensitive to those signals? Um, and to what point is it important that we see them? Having a willing partner but not being accepting of, uh, of their support can be just as detrimental as having, you know, the need for support and a partner who can't offer it. 
One of the things that jumped out at me is you ref the other point that you're making that sort of, I guess, maybe the duality of uh, being in a relationship reminded me a bit of, I believe it might be Brewer's work called Optimal Distinctiveness, but mm. it's not so much in relationships. I think that was more geared toward uh, being member, becoming a member of groups and forming larger sort of social networks. And the idea of this this constant sort of struggle with the assimilation to groups while at the same time maintaining a sense of self and uniqueness. I don't know if those uh, are connected uh, sort of uh, phenomena for you or not, but that's what struck me, that, that that's a challenge that we don't often think about in terms of being in a relationship. I mean, there's certainly about, in terms of attraction and, and fluidity of, of the relationship, high degrees of similarity are usually um, are usually preferable. But like you said, Brewer's work suggests that there are benefits to being distinct from your partner. And I think it would really come down to the degree that that distinctiveness is complementary to not just the other person's goals, but people develop these dyads, these groups of, of people working together, develop goals that are kind of communal to the relationship. And so to the extent that which that, that distinctiveness is beneficial to relationship goals, your goals as a couple, um, I think would also, you know, enhance relationship processes. Danny is a paramedic. I found myself getting irrationally upset that he wasn't around. <laughs> and I miss my man. I want to hug him. I want to kiss him. I want to hang out with him. I think people are just really craving connection and intimacy on any level. It's considered torture to be isolated and alone. Our only human connection is through a screen. The easiest way to get annoyed by somebody is to spend a lot of time with them. I think we'll end up being a lot closer than we were before because I think that's the nature of when you just spend time with one person. It seems to me that there are stories I've seen in the news about uh, relationships in this time where people around the world have been in shelter in place situations, lockdowns, some obviously more so uh, than others. People re restrictions have been uh, loosened in some places, but clearly partners have been forced to spend an awful lot of time together uh, mm -hmm. in very close uh, situation. And there could be some positives and some negatives to all of that. Um, so what do we know so far and what, what's your perspective on all of this? So I think it's going to be really hard in terms of what do we know? I think it's going to be really hard for us to know, you know, the way you and I like to know things, Philip, in terms of like psychological, scientific evidence. I think the evidence is going to take a while to fully appreciate the impact of these processes. But I think it's also important for us to think about how COVID is really unprecedented and it is really uncertain, but also it is a stressor just like lots of other stressors. Um, at the end of the day, right? And, you know, years from now, we'll all be saying, like, we remember this time um, that we all experienced. Um, and so I think we do know things about how relationships endure stressors that we can at least apply to um, to the current situation while that, the full picture of evidence is missing. And, and what we do know, and I mean, we've seen it in, in countries like China, we're reporting really high divorce rates. So we know that there's a potential risk for dissolution. But then more recently, surveys that have focused on um, the US, Canada, and, and the United Kingdom have, have found that maybe relationships haven't fared quite as poorly as people were anticipating in these shelter-in-place situations. And I, I think it, it comes from the fact that, one, people like I mentioned before, rely on their close relationships and, and, you know, primarily their romantic partners to get through difficult situations. 
And so on the one hand, it's giving people an opportunity to really focus on the relationship and what they need from that relationship and prioritize those goals with one another. And then um, there are going to be other individuals where this experience is potentially very eye-opening and, and makes them question whether the structure they find themselves in, the relationship they find themselves in, is one that is worth pursuing when we come you know, through the other side of this experience. And there's nothing like being you know, face-to-face with your partner 24 hours a day to really make those kinds of issues salient that perhaps it's easy to ignore or easy to brush aside when we see our partner for a couple of hours in the morning and a couple of hours in the evening, for those of us you know, working a standard nine-to-five job kind of structure. Certainly. I'm wondering as well, something that I haven't heard much, again, this would be all anecdotally for me in terms of uh, podcasts and news and and sort of, as you're saying, like these early reports uh, coming out from uh, uh, countries dealing with relationships and relationship status is in a lockdown. The one thing that, like I said, I haven't really heard people talk about so much isn't just the, oh, I'm stuck here in the same home uh, as uh, my partner, but also uh, the important role sometimes that extended families can play mm-hmm. in relationships and and how being unable to sort of be with family, whether it be your family or your in-laws, uh, what, what, again, it may be speculation uh, from your part of what you do know about that kind of literature, or again, is it even a question that's a, a research-based question? But it strikes me that we're, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about, oh, the two people in the same environment, and yet we don't, it goes back to your thesis, the social support network. Well, that mm-hmm. includes your extended family, doesn't it? And if you can't mm-hmm. visit with them, if you can't be around them, is that a part of the, the process here that you start becoming disconnected from that larger family that, that you have been connected to? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think one of the biggest risks is is the strain that COVID has potentially uniquely put on relationships where you're not interacting with people in the same way you were before, right? So for people who are um, have always been maybe maintaining a distanced um, relationship with their family members, having less frequent contact, maybe less impactful than a family who has the grandparents coming over every single day to help with the children, right, and to help the childcare responsibilities. And, um, you know, not being able to see face to face. I mean, human connection or physical human connection is a, is a huge important predictor of satisfaction and well-being. And we've been cut off from a lot of sources of this physical contact with others. And that's certainly going to have um, ramifications. But to not just put a really dark spin on it, I think people have been adapting in many ways to try and really um uh, to, to try and, and maintain these relationships despite this physical distance and these physical barriers that have emerged. So, um, you know, again, the kind of anecdotally, but I've heard so many stories of elderly relatives finally kind of, you know, reluctantly giving in and, and getting on Zoom and, you know, engaging in these distanced evenings together. Um, people talking about how they've reconnected with old friends because they're not as distracted by the the day-to-day interactions they were typically having with friends and have had the space to kind of reach out to people who they care about. But the day-to-day norms that we exist through have created barriers or, um, you know, obstacles to just as easily reaching out or having the time to reach out to those people. So I think that there have been really creative solutions that have emerged as well. And part of it is maybe just, you know, the next phase of human uh, evolution, so to speak, 
where, you know, years ago when the telephone was invented, people talked about how the telephone would be the destruction of, of social relationships. And then the same thing with the internet and the same thing with cell phones and texting. Um, and, you know, I think the one thing that Zoom has showed us is that all this technology is a tool that we can use to our advantage. And some people are really managing to do that. It's never going to replace a hug from your, you know, your, your extended loved one, but it can have benefits that can buffer that void that we face um, anyways. Connecting in this sort of Zoom, Skype, video chat way over the last few months with family and extended friends has felt, even though it, as you say, it's nowhere near the same as, as the in-person in connections that you might have with them, it has, to me, made such a huge, uh, drawn such a huge distinction between, at the very least, that to a standard pre-COVID sort of social networking way of being connected to friends mm -hmm. and such. You know, status updates, and I liked your post. This is technology. This is, in a sense, a social networked way of communicating. But I think it has allowed us to kind of put that other way of being so-called socially connected in a in a broader context and made me feel like, well, maybe I wasn't as connected then as I want to be now. Yeah. And I think, I mean, extending that and, and not bringing it back to the relationship research, but kind of, you know, what we know from relationship research is that we feel more connected to people when we see more you know, private, personal aspects in themselves, and they share these kind of guarded aspects of themselves with us. And one of the really interesting things is that it's kind of forced everyone to bring their colleagues into their homes, their friends into their homes on a regular basis. Um, but I think that's also maybe had lots of beneficial effects as well. Um, if, you know, if you think about colleagues who are people you often see every single day, but you don't always feel a, you know, a friendship with. some For some of us, you know, seeing a colleague's kid come into a Zoom meeting, you know, whether uh, the parent wants that or not, um, you know, seeing people's pets, seeing the inside of people's living rooms creates a form of intimacy that we weren't having before. And that intimacy can actually be really uh, fruitful in, in guiding other types of behaviors later on. So I think, you know, yeah, I think, like you said, there's, there's interesting transformation and, and this tool is providing an interesting way of adapting relationships. I think also, I mean, drawing on that too, our interactions have become more deliberate. I mean, you know, you're, you don't interact with someone if you don't turn on the Zoom mm -hmm. recording or you don't reach out to them, as opposed to lots of kind of passive interactions that we might have throughout the day, which there's nothing wrong with those passive, intera um, passive interactions. Um, we have a colleague that studies how important, you know, these transient um, one-off interactions with strangers are. Yes. But, you know, there's something also very different about, you know, seeing the same people, how are you doing, what's going on, versus, you know, deliberately inviting them into your home, in a sense, deliberately engaging with that people, deliberately having a pub quiz, instead of just finding yourself at the, the same pub, you know, on a Friday evening, as you normally would do. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, there's some really interesting um, changes that we have undergone um, and, and I think being more deliberate in our interactions and more, um, you know, it forcing us to be a little bit more intimate and honest with each other, I hope will have some really nice um, consequences down the line as well. Sort of what are what are some of the things that you know as a, an expert in relationships that people should be thinking about in terms of all right I'm still in some form of shelter in place lockdown or at least a, a, a 
concerned social distance relationship. What are some of the things that people should be on the lookout for to, to maintain the positives in a relationship and to avoid those perhaps negative paths that could happen? So there are two things um, that I'll focus on. Um, one, one is, um, you know, the kind of inevitability of conflict or, or discord or, you know, friction during this period and why that's not necessarily a bad thing. And then the other one is the importance of, um, you know, focusing on, on yourself um, and really kind of self-reflection and, and introspection. And, and the first one I mentioned conflict because, you know, one, we know that stressors increase the likelihood of, of conflict. Um, and so if you are experiencing conflict during this period, I don't want people to walk away from this discussion thinking like, oh, no, that's indicative of something bad in my relationship. Um, we know that, you know, under non-lockdown circumstances, experiencing a stressor is going to inc increase conflict. What's unique about this this stressor is, like we discussed already, is you're potentially um, locked into, a, you know, non-stop interactions with your partner. Um, and also, you know, in situations where it was maybe easy to ignore or easy to discount um, behaviors that your partner was doing before, they're going to be more readily um, apparent to you. So, for example, if you have a partner who has the tendency to leave the cupboard doors open in the kitchen, and, you know, you only had to deal that with that in the evening after they put the dishes away, but now they're in the kitchen, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, leaving the cupboards, and it feels like you live with a ghost, that's going to be more irritating to you and, and more likely to, to fray each other's uh, nerves. But the important thing, too, to keep in mind is that this is also an opportunity to reflect on what you both need out of these relationships and, and reflecting on what you need and communicating that with your partner, even if it is the result of a conflict, um, are essential. We have to tell our partners, we have to tell each other what we need. And if things have changed, and this is an opportunity for you to grow together, or your needs have changed because the situation has changed, then it's really important to share that with each other, to give each other the opportunity to grow and be the best partners we can be for one another. You know, you don't want to find out your partner is suffering in silence because their role in the relationship has been to, to say, make um, the meals. They're the cook in your, in your relationship, but they're finding, you know, being the cook for dinner only was fine, but now cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner is more than what they really had thought they had signed up for, and they would like to split that task in a different way. You don't want to find out they've just been sitting in silence, stewing, and being like, ugh, you know, I feel like I'm being burdened by my responsibility. You want the opportunity to say, well, hey, I'll make breakfast, right? You know, I don't mind pitching in and contributing in a different way. Same thing with, you know, if, if for people who have children, you know, being the person who primarily organizes things for the children might be fine when, you know, you have a set structure. But this lawless land where your kids are at home all day with you and now you're the teacher and their, you know, chef and organizing their activities, you might need more help. And again, most of us, when we find out our partner needs something from us, we want to help them, right? Most of us feel, you know, don't feel a burden from that interaction. Um, and also it's an opportunity for you to say, hey, actually, here's what I need in exchange. Um, and so, you know, conflict, we think of it as this, you know, ubiquitously negative thing. But it's actually a really good opportunity to negotiate and um, to negotiate your needs with one another. So a conflict as a catalyst for communication. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, a lot, a of, a lot of alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think another thing that kind of stems from conflict and, and moves into the next topic of um, introspection is that, you know, if you are having a, com- a conflict with your partner, it's really important not to just be defensive right off the bat. Because just as much as we want to to help our partners and, and provide them with, you know, the what they need, um, it can be hurtful when you hear that you're kind of dropping the ball, right? We, do, we don't like that. We don't want to think that we're failing in some capacity um, or that our efforts are going unnoticed. But one, we can try and frame our needs in a way that aren't, uh, defense provoking. So, you know, instead of saying something like, you never, um, you don't care about me because you never make breakfast, you could say something like, I feel um, very neglected when, you know, you're not tending to my needs in this different way. Could you please help me in this way? Hmm. That takes the defensiveness away from, from the other person. It's not laying blame on them or accusing them of trying to hurt you. Um, it's expressing how you feel, and it's also giving them a clear way in which they can resolve that that um, that discussion. But then the flip side to that is the introspection piece, and and one of the things um, in in my own research and um, the research I collaborate on is the importance of being able to trust your partner, um, and a lot of that comes from how you see yourself. People who don't have a positive view of themselves or have a hard time believing that their partners care about them. Um, are less likely to engage in the kinds of behaviors like constructive conflict, um, expressing what they need with their partner, giving their partner the benefit of the doubt that can actually elicit those kinds of positive responses from their partner. Um, What if someone is finding, uh, well, geez, I'm not sure, whether it's uh, a feeling, uh, the the sort of slow burn of being in lockdown that has led to a distance in place, or perhaps some other form of infidelity in the new modern era. You, you have found your partner Zooming with someone else in a different way than perhaps <laughs> they do at work, right? So, I mean, I'm imagining yeah. there's still infidelity. It just may be uh, online more so than before. And again, not without, you know, we, we want positive outcomes for people. But if you're in that situation and yet you are in a sort of lockdown, the world is not quite the same place. What 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 suggestions or advice do you have for people who are who are in that, but necessarily can't leave right away a relationship or even find some distance from their partner that might actually normally be healthy. Yeah, and I think I think these are the situations and these are the relationships that are are going to be most impacted by by COVID, um, particularly like you said, because they can't get that distance. You know, it is it is good sometimes um, to be able to to get away. Like I said, even you know, in a healthy relationship, being able to leave the house and ignore maybe your partner's mess for for the day, um, you know can be uh, can be a good distance that you can recalibrate and then come back later on. In the current environment, we can't even get that small amount of space. And that doesn't even take into account relationships where it was maybe broken down to an extent um, where it wasn't functioning properly before COVID and now that's being amplified. Relationships where people have expressed that they need a rebalancing of their roles or rebalancing of their needs and the partner is unwilling to make adjustments. Um, infidelities, like you said, I heard one story anecdotally of someone um, who whose partner, when when it was announced that you could have your one off bubble person, mm. um, the partner told her that um, he needed to see his mistress that he had been seeing for years, and his his mistress had to be his bubble person. And this was the first she was finding out about a mistress, right? And I'm sure this individual isn't the only person to learn about that kind of. Um, 
that kind of situation. I guess I maybe can... half a point for honesty. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you know, he's like, I don't want to contaminate people, <laughs> so I have to tell you that my bubble person is my mistress. Oh, what a story. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, there's probably really interesting research that can be done on how people are maintaining those kind of extra extramarital activities during um, during lockdown when they can't sneak out and, and meet with exactly. one another in person. Exactly. Um, but I, you know, I think I think the important thing is that one, it's not wrong, and this is what I was getting to about conflict. It's not wrong to feel like there are stressors and, and negatives in the relationship. Um, if you are in an environment where you know you really truly need distance, reach out to your friends and family members, even who aren't um, uh, in who aren't in your physical proximity, but are in your emotional proximity, and you know find a couple of safe people to open up to and explain how you're feeling, because other people can often help us gain a perspective that we can't gain ourselves. Um, you know, make sure you're safe. I'm really mindful of all the all the research suggesting that people, um, you know, physical and interpersonal violence has has been on the rise. You know, make sure you're safe. Um, staying in a physical environment with someone who's physically dangerous is actually a more immediate health concern than potentially the risks of contract contracting COVID. Right. Um, and so, you know, you know, be safe. Um, and I never advocate for people to stay in a relationship just because relationships are these valued social um, social roles. And I think, like I said before, this is an opportunity to really reflect if this is the, the relationship for you. And if your partner, it, as long as you've been open with the other person and have tried to engage with them to communicate what those needs are, if that other person ultimately will not be a responsive partner, you can always do better than stay in an unhappy relationship. And, and that goes for any time, you know, there's tons of research. Uh, Lisa Jaremka has all this research looking at um, the impact of conflict on your physiology, um, you know, the impact of being in an unhealthy relationship on your physiology. So inflammation, um, uh, blood pressure, obesity, you know, Unha unhappy, unhealthy relationships take a physical toll on us in addition to an emotional toll. And so if at the end of the day, the relationship's not working, being single is always better than being in an unhappy relationship. And that, you know, that's always the one thing I hope people, um, when I talk about relationships, they're great and wonderful. And I'm really invested in trying to understand how to keep them together. But also I'm very mindful of the fact that some relationships should not persist. And there's good reasons for that too. Now, how about those relationships that don't yet exist? Is there any sort of good advice or, or sort of known data to understand how a time like this, what people who are single can do? What are some of the things that uh, they ought to be doing for their own sake, but let alone uh, in the context of trying to find a partner? Yeah, so I think that's kind of been one of the hot ticket questions, especially in relationship research about what, you know, what are daters going to do in, in lockdown when you can't leave your home and meet people? And and one of the things about proximity, why it's such a strong predictor is, um, you know, that's the people you're more likely to bump into and have repeated interactions with are people you're more likely to um, to start a relationship with. You know, it's a really functional, um, it's a really functional predictor in lots of different ways. Um, luckily, 
online dating already existed. But what I think is really interesting is that I've heard, and so this is this is anecdotal. I've heard from um, from lots of initial interest in, in how people are going to maintain dating that online dating shifted from this, you know, rapid match, unmatch, match, unmatch, text with lots of different people, you know, kind of this rapid sorting of, of your um, like a, like a video off. game of some form. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it kind of like really rapidly shifted from that to suddenly people having these really long, in-depth um, Zoom dates with people they were just kind of meeting through um, their online dating apps. And I think on the one hand, that probably reflected people's desire for that intimacy we were talking about before, you know, this desire to see someone, um, especially probably for people um, who were living on their own. Um, but they were having these really in-depth, long um, online virtual dates and so one of the questions people have had is whether or not this is going to represent a complete shift in how people approach dating, even if they continue to do it through virtual means, or whether once we're all kind of let loose again, we're going to go back to our like quick rapid fire access to, to partners and it'll revert back to how it was. But that's one of the things that um, seems to have shifted somewhat, at least anecdotally, um, when people started dating. Do you have any I, hypothesis at this point of how that might play out? I don't know. It's so difficult because, you know, the cynic in me is like <laughs> once we're out of lockdown, you know, we're going to kind of fall back on a lot of our bad behaviors. Um, but I think maybe especially for, um, you know, a younger generation who are more technologically savvy to begin with and are maybe kind of this is their first experiences with with dating. Um, maybe it's going to set the model for them and this will become their new normal. It may be that long Zoom dates, even when you could meet for the first couple of times in person, there may be a sense of much more comfort in that, a mm -hmm. much more safe and and more intimate environment in some way where, again, yeah. because it has become this place where you can just be yourself as opposed to I got to put on some kind of act at the pub or the bar, maybe there will be a, a change uh, in the future for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And for all the reasons you listed as well, I think it could definitely go that, that route, especially for some people. You know, there's always individual differences. All right. Well, Veronica, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. It was really uh, great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Philip. I really had an enjoyable time today. All right. Be well. Thanks. You too. Bye. Well, thank you once again for checking out the Understanding Our Place in the World podcast. This podcast was produced by the Department of Psychology at the University of Essex. Make sure to check us out again as we'll have another interview for you to listen to next week.